It's 2.30 on a Friday afternoon in September, and I'm making a phone call to Ani DeFranco. I have arranged with her publicist to do a short phone interview ahead of her concert the next night in New York City, which happens to coincide with her 53rd birthday. As the phone rings, I hear the low moan of the dial tone, and I am flooded with memories. Not so much of a particular experience attached to Ani DeFranco, although I have plenty, but more of the feeling of listening to her music for over a quarter century. The call goes unanswered, and I'm both disappointed and relieved. At the tone, please record your message. I leave a slightly timid message on her machine. Hi, Ani, it's Leo Sidrin. If you get this and you want to call back, feel free. Welcome to the third story. I'm Leo Sidrin. See maybe if I can catch you. Ani DeFranco can inspire fanaticism, obsession, and loyalty in her listeners. Her own story is somewhat incredible. She began recording and self-releasing her music as a 20-year-old in Buffalo, New York, in 1990. Her first album, which was self-titled, opened with a song that still follows her around today, Both Hands. I am walking out in the rain And I am listening to the low moan of the dial tone again And I am getting nowhere with you And I can't let it go And I can't get through 34 years later, Ani is widely considered to be a feminist icon. But really, she seemed to emerge iconic, fully formed, and fearless. From the moment she began, she was a facile lyricist with a biting directness. She made it clear that songs could, and maybe even should, be a form of activism, and that it was possible to express your opinions and your expectations in song, to be political, to be provocative, to tell the truth. A song in Ani's hands was a vessel to say something important about the world. She was a virtuosic acoustic guitar player with a ferocious rhythmic style that set her apart. And she was ahead of her time as an independent artist who owned all her own masters and controlled most of the major aspects of her career. Before the internet, before streaming, before the barrier to entry was low enough for anyone to record and release their own music, Ani figured out how to get her records out on her own terms. That's why she's sometimes called the mother of the DIY movement. At the time, the press labeled her a savvy entrepreneur who hacked the system and made more money per unit than any other artist. But in fact, it was her anti-corporate ethos that motivated her to take control in that way. And for anyone really paying attention, her politics were a large part of the appeal. And if you're not angry, then you're just stupid, you don't care. How else can you react when you know something's so unfair? When the man of the hour can kill half the world in war, make them slaves to a superpower, and let them die poor. I was locked into being my mother's daughter. I was just eating bread and water, thinking nothing ever changes, and I was shocked. See, the mistakes of each generation will just fade like a radio station. If you drive, you just gotta drive. She called her record company Righteous Babe, and though she has avoided most of the countless labels that have been placed on her over the years, the Righteous Babe label is still very much intact, both as a moniker and a mechanism for distributing her music and other distinguished songwriters, too. The label has released records by the likes of Andrew Bird, Utah Phillips, Arto Lindsay, and Aeneas Mitchell, whose own Town project was first released as an album on Righteous Babe before being transformed into the Broadway hit that it is today. I decide to call again on FaceTime audio. Maybe she didn't hear the phone the first time. Still no answer. For a lot of young listeners today, especially young female listeners, the world seems to be divided into two camps. Taylor Swift and everything else. 
there were those for whom the same could have been said about Ani DeFranco in the 90s. I remember the mixtape that my friend Shira made for me sometime in high school, maybe in 93 or 94. Side A was labeled Ani, and side B was labeled not Ani. And an argument could be made that without DeFranco, there might be no Taylor Swift, that kind of fiercely independent female singer-songwriter who makes as much of a statement in the way they control their careers as they do in the songs themselves. But Ani DeFranco was always tied to the folk tradition. She was more punk than pop, and she seemed more interested in fighting the power than in joining the ranks. She might have been a commercial success in her way, but there was nothing overtly commercial about what she was doing. And listening to Ani gave people a sense of both exclusivity and propriety. It was more of an underground thing. You had to discover her. You had to find her. And when you did, you felt like you belonged to a club. You became part of a community. What that community was about, exactly, was sometimes a matter up for debate. It was unquestionably animated by Ani, but some people were more attached to one particular aspect of it or another that happened to speak to them. For some, it was about radical feminism. For some, it was about sexuality. For some, it was about folk music. These are not mutually exclusive necessarily, but you could feel Ani dealing with the tension of being boxed in as one thing or another, sometimes flirting with it, sometimes rejecting it outright in her writing. Like in her song, In or Out, where she asserts her refusal to be placed up on any shelf. Their eyes are all asking, are you in or are you out? And I think, oh man, what is this about? I mean, tonight you can't put me up on any shelf. Cause I came here alone and I'm gonna leave by myself. I just wanna show you the way that I feel. And when I get tired, you can take the wheel. To me, what's more important is the person that I bring, not just getting to the same restaurant and eating the same thing. When she wrote this song, Ani was only three years into her recording career, but already she seemed to be grappling with what felt like an insatiable need coming from both the outside and the inside of her own community to define her, to corral her, to label her. I decide to send an email to her publicist to see if there's any way to salvage our interview. As a budding teenage songwriter myself, I felt both emboldened and defeated by Ani DeFranco. I desperately wanted to make somebody feel the way she made me feel but I also felt like a complete hack every time I tried. She was unafraid to make a mistake, to change her mind, to let us in on her process of becoming. This was long before people shared their private lives in public, before we performed our personal identities online. So in a way, Ani's personal transformations were a proxy for all of those of us who were following along while we were in our own process of becoming. And you could hear her developing as a songwriter, as an artist, as a person, and as a general technician with each new statement. And although she knew how to celebrate a victory and empower a community, she also raised voicing her disappointment to a high art. Fuck you and your untouchable face. Fuck you for existing in the first place. And who am I that I should be lying for your touch? So who am I? I bet you can't even tell me that much. I remember wondering what it would be like to meet Ani DeFranco. It seemed important to me. But to ask what of her, to tell her what, I didn't know. And eventually I did have a chance to meet her, a couple of times actually, in the 90s. Once I even escorted her around the offices of a TV station where I had a summer internship. I'm sure she would not remember it, but for me, it was an exhilarating and frustrating afternoon to be standing within inches of someone I admired so much, but struggling to find any words that seemed to matter. And considering how finely tuned her bullshit detector appeared to be, I was also afraid of her, and that she might see through me. 
I know now these are all just projections that we make on the people that we admire. At the time, I think I wanted to prove something to her about who I was. And I didn't want to just make small talk. I wanted a conversation that would loom large. Really, I think I wanted to prove something to myself. I suppose that might be what inspiration is, when someone else's work demands the most of you, knowing that someone else was making authentic, honest, provocative, brave, important-seeming work like Ani made me want to find a way to make my contribution, too. I just didn't know how to do it yet. But I promised myself that one day I would have a proper conversation with Ani DeFranco, and one day I would salvage this missed opportunity and redeem myself. Ani DeFranco's most recent studio album, Revolutionary Love, came out in 2021. Today she's working on what will be her 23rd album, and last year she published a picture book for children called The Knowing, which she described as an Ani DeFranco-style lullaby inviting young readers to ponder the distinction between outer forms of identity and the inner light of consciousness. And it was recently announced that starting in February of this year, she'll be joining the cast of Town on Broadway. She'll be playing the role of Persephone. It's a part she sang on Anais Mitchell's original Righteous Babe release of Town back in 2010. So it's both a Broadway debut and a full circle moment for Ani. So Ani is still very much doing the thing, pushing the rock up the hill. And for those who are curious about the details of her journey, she put many of them in her 2019 memoir, No Walls and the Recurring Dream. In recent years, Ani's been reissuing anniversary editions of her early recordings. Last year, she revisited the 1998 album Little Plastic Castle, sharing anecdotes and memories of the making of it on social media and playing some of those songs live. And they say goldfish have no memory. I guess their lives are much like mine And the little plastic castle Is a surprise every time And it's hard to say if they're happy But they don't seem much to mine So although she's very much a person of the present moment, she's also in a slightly retrospective mood these days. And despite the claim in her lyrics that she has the memory of a goldfish, I thought she might be open to looking back a bit as well. I get an email from her publicist telling me to call back again right now that Ani is ready for me. When we finally get on the phone, Ani will apologize for keeping me waiting for 25 minutes. But 25 minutes is nothing when you've already waited 25 years to talk to someone. And what was intended to be a short preview of her show the next night turns into a more sprawling, philosophical, an introspective conversation about how she sees her work today, looking back on her early career, avoiding labels and definitions, her idea of success, raising children in an era of performative identity, practicing revolutionary love, and more. In other words, I get my redemption. The next night, Ani will take the stage at Le Poisson Rouge in New York and share many of the same sentiments with her audience that she shares with me in our conversation. But for a frozen moment on a Friday afternoon in September, it's just the two of us talking it down. Third-Story.com is the place to sign up, subscribe, and see the archive. Hundreds of deep-diving conversations, including episodes with other brilliant singer-songwriters like Jonathan Brook, Theo Katzman, Beth Nielsen-Chapman, Ron Sexsmith, Imogen Heap, Peter Himmelman, Dessa, Martin Sexton, S.G. Goodman, and many, many more. Plus, a recent talk with Ani's longtime collaborator, Todd Sikafus. 
We're made in partnership with WBGO Studios. Visit wbgo.org studios to find out more about all their award-winning work. And it's patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast to support the project on a deeper level. Here's me and Ani DeFranco talking it down. Hello. Hi, Ani. Can you hear me? Yes, Leo. So sorry. Totally understandable. Well, I don't know if it's understandable, but yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I like when you just give me the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> well, I know you're in the road mode right now. Yes, road mode. And I, I usually have a road manager that helps me remember the things. And um, it's a little not so much out here right now. So I was actually in a car looking at my phone going, who's Leo? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I figured that. It is a kind of a good opportunity for us to start by talking about just the experience of being on the road today. I grew up with you like so many, and I remember it just seemed like there was a period where you kept coming to my town. You know, you were just like relentlessly on tour. Yeah. Yes. Yes. What is it like for you touring today? And, you know, how do you look back at that period in your life? Right. Well, that period in my, it was relentless for me too. <laughs> for, for sure. Oh my gosh, you couldn't get rid of me. But um, much less so these days, of course. I'm, you know, uh, tours are few and far between for all sorts of reasons. In fact, I've been touring so little as of late. You know, the pandemic, of course, everything was shut down, long dry spell, and I was grateful to be at home. You know, and then post-pandemic, whatever that means, which mm. was such a soft <laughs> landing, um, you know, everything was topsy-turvy. There's no buses. Your crew has gone off and gotten other jobs. You're this, you're that. You're, you know, guitars have been incinerated. So <laughs> there's a lot of feeling of trying to reinvent my wheel, you know. And anyway, all this to say that I think... In these last year or two, I've been feeling like, oh, God, I don't know. Is this even the right job for me anymore? Maybe I should just work at a coffee shop or I don't know, you know, the existential crisis thing that we're all we've all been doing for the pandemic. And coming out here these last couple of weeks, I'm like, oh, mm. I, I don't know if I can swear on your show, but do it. Fuck yeah, this is the job for me. This is the best job. I love this job. I forgot. And so I've had the luxury of forgetting how great it is to play music for a living. And it feels really great to be out here doing it now. Yeah. It seemed like you showed up originally with this hunger, you know, this deep desire, this fire to do this thing. Yeah. And you know, it's not possible, but maybe it's possible, but, you know, fires change, hard appetites mm -hmm. change over time. It's really kind of striking to hear you say that there was a moment where you thought, maybe this isn't what mm -hmm. I should do in the future or what your job is. You know, that's mm -hmm. what you said. Is this the right job? What do you think your job is? I think my job is connecting with people mm. and connecting people to themselves mm. and connecting people with each other. It's just all about, and that's what never gets old. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, just stepping out there and feeling that sense of community and, and positivity and possibility and joy and power and 
purpose and all of those things that kick in when we really connect with each other, mm -hmm. you know, it's and uplift each other and hold each other and see each other and, 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 you know, just accompany each other even through it, even if you're going through it, you know, it's, it's who I, you know, I'll tell you a little mini, mini story. Um, I was playing one of these dates on this tour was a guitar festival in Urbana, Illinois. Cool festival. Lots of different types of guitar slingers. Mm -hmm. And um, I was waiting on the festival van to take me to the shower room or whatever. And I'm, it pulls up and off loading off the bus was uh, Emmy Lou Harris and her band. Mm -hmm. So I got to see her and hug her for the first time in maybe 20 years. Uh, I mean, I think it was a last time we saw each other was a festival in Ireland. She was on the wrecking ball sort of tour. And anyway, so it was really sweet to connect with her for a moment. And she said something like, here we still are, <laughs> you know? And she was like, yeah, we're still, still doing this. And of course she's been doing it. Uh, maybe 20 years longer than I mm -hmm. even, you know, and I've been doing this 30 years. Mm -hmm. And she said, not just still doing it, but still loving it. I still love it. And I was like, yeah, me too. I think that, and that it just really hit me. Like the, the trick is not to keep doing it. The trick is to keep loving it. Mm -hmm. We, we need to all want to be doing what we're doing. We got to find a way. And yeah. if you can't, then you got to do something else. <laughs> you know, you say you've been doing this 30 years and we lose 20 years ahead of you. But you have reached this stage in your career where there there's an aspect of it that is a kind of retrospective. This year you re-released the 25th anniversary edition of Little Plastic Castle. Before that, you did the same with Living in Clip. There's a part of you that as you move forward is also taking a little time to look backwards at your career. Mm -hmm. What is that experience like for you to revisit work that's a quarter century old? Um, I mean, it's really sweet. It's really, um, uh, you know, what's the word? It's, it's, it's just very lovely to feel the love out there for those records that were coming out that were sort of, you know, it was a pivotal kind of time for me 25 years ago and my music was reaching more people suddenly after you know a good decade of doing it and people were connecting in and and the albums were striking chords and so it's very sweet to take that trip down memory lane um, I mean starting with the process of I mean I guess it all kind of started because one of the thoughtful people that I'm working with now in my management office was like, yeah, we should probably take those master tapes that are on these bygone formats that may or may not even play anymore. And if you can find a player to play them on um, and digitize them. Right. Yeah. So I was starting to go through boxes of ADATs and crap that I was recording on, you know, including the little plastic castle record and, uh, you know, so it, so the trip down memory lane started very intimately <laughs> with me in my studio and some ADAP machines that I found on eBay, mm. you know, reliving the sessions as I was putting them on hard drives mm. and just really transporting myself back to that 
young woman who made those records and the people, her friends and the, the funny hangs in the studio and the hilarity and the, of course, I found it hard to not sit from my perch of now and go, no, not take six, take three, <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, don't, no, don't overdose, no, ah, but um, yeah, then just sort of putting these reissues in the world and just hearing everybody's stories about their connection with the records and their love and the community that really started taking hold around them. It's been great. It's funny that the example that you give is that with the benefit of hindsight, you realize maybe you didn't need to do so much to them. Not that they were ever mm -hmm. overproduced, but the sense of, no, leave it alone. It's good. It's good. Do you think that that's just a function of maturity? You, you know, what do you think that impulse is to say, looking back on it, I could have done less? I've, I always said, and it still rings very true <laughs> uh, for me, that, you know, performing is a thing I practice many nights a week, mm -hmm. many, many, you know, years on end. Records, what, once, twice, three times a year if I'm on a bender, mm -hmm. you know, um, it's, it's taken me a long time to figure it out, you know, and it's a moving target, what I'm about in any moment or how I'm conceiving of making a record or um, what sort of the palette of sounds in my head or, or who I'm working with or where or what. But I think I have a certain amount of, well, uh, skills and maybe wisdom, you know, uh, after 22, I'm working on my 23rd record now, you know, that I just couldn't have had after a handful of records. I'm just shooting in the dark. And yeah, I think a lot of the takeaway from listening to early albums is the more decisions you made, Ani, the further you got from the mark, you know, because something vital was happening inside you, but the more you tried to analyze it or do things or, you know, in this realm of the studio where, which is not my indigenous landscape, <laughs> I live out in the world. I live at 70 miles an hour with a lot of people around me. So, yeah, the more I could jeopardize my own thing, you know. Yeah. You might have been shooting in the dark, but it seemed pretty clear to you from early on that if somebody was going to be holding the gun, it was going to be you. I mean, from early on, you, sure. you know, if there were going to be mistakes that were made or there were going to be masterpieces that were made, it would be you that was making the decisions. Yeah, I I think, yeah, it's, there's something very deep in me about that. What is life? You know, what is life but making your own mistakes and learning from them? Mm. You know, and I mean, of course, there's plenty of wisdom to delegating to those who have more skills than you have more experience, but, you know, and that's cool, too. But I think for me, just my process of becoming myself, I just felt more compelled to try to figure stuff out than to make phone calls and engage the professionals. You know, <laughs> I just want to. I just want to try shit. You know, I don't know. I don't know. And I guess for me, it's that that being compelled, that that um, drive was just more was stronger than getting it, quote, right. You know, was there a sense of what success meant to you? Have you ever had a, any kind of North Star in terms of what it is to be successful doing what you do? 
Um, I mean, you know, early on, like when I first started hitting the radar, say around the time of these albums that, you know, uh, I became, quote, famous to some degree, people would cite my success in terms of album sales. She sold more albums independently than Parker, 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 and makes more per album than blah, 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 you know, and I just thought, ew, 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 ew. Hmm. I don't know. At least the the radical in me, the feminist in me, it's like, can we have some other measure of success? Mm -hmm. Because I think of uh, uh, six incredibly successful artists are not necessarily the best selling or the best percentage per unit or what, you know, like why? And so I started pushing back on that. And I remember my go-to for a lot of years early on was like, I think I was a success when I was playing a little bar in Buffalo as a teenager and I was really upset because I had had an argument with my boyfriend, but I went on stage, which was not even a stage. It was just a corner of the room and I played and I put on a good show, even though I was all messed up, mm -hmm. you know? And I was like, I felt that's a pro move, <laughs> you know, like I'm pro now. I just, I just did it. I just did it with, I worked with whatever I had and I made something out of it performance wise. And anyway, I think now, you know, many decades have gone by and I, you know, relating to what we were talking about a minute ago, I think for me now, success looks like staying deeply interested, still loving it, still loving it and still finding my sense of wonder in it. I love that you say that's a pro move, right? Because like, you know, we have this sense that we're sharing our souls or whatever that, you, you know, but at the same time, the show must go on no matter what's going on. You got to put the show on. You were a pro. Right. But it does sort of give me a sense also that one of the things that ha happens with you particularly is that I think people feel like maybe they know you if they listen to your music because you do kind of <laughs> share a lot of yourself in the work. And I just wonder yeah, if over the years that has been a challenge or you've had to learn how to sort of figure out what parts of you to share and to give away and to keep for yourself to stay pro. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mostly that struggle for me exists around exposing other people mm. and showing others because of course my life is the lives of many people all interacting and and sometimes the story that I'm writing, even though I may be writing in first person, is not necessarily or literally or only me. Maybe it's somebody I know intimately and I'm telling their story to a, to a degree or, or I'm using everything that I experience and that I know and that I feel. And that includes a lot of other people. So that's the tricky part for me in terms of showing myself i just decided to stop worrying about that a long time ago i mean not that i do that successfully <laughs> but i just i have no patience for i think it's because i just love people who are brave in showing themselves people who just say it whatever it is that they actually think those are the people that compel me like people who are guarded people who play it safe people who think everything's too private and too personal. I it's just like, ugh. it's exhausting to me to do everything appropriate and hide everything that's supposed to be hidden, you know? So I think I want to participate 
on some level in letting that go. I think it's interesting that you say it's hard work to try to keep things hidden because for others, it's hard work to tell the truth or figure out what to share about themselves. Yeah. But is it, though? (laughs) (laughs) Because, I mean, not to be all high and mighty, but like when I started writing songs and everybody... A lot of people in this world who were queer, no matter how public a persona they were, they're closeted all around me. I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, you know, closeted, huge populations of people hiding essential, elemental aspects of themselves because it was too hard to not. If you look at that situation or any situation, it's like, what? I mean, I guess it's two versions of hard. Mm-hmm. And which are you going to pick? Are you going to pick the hard of hiding yourself? Or are you going to pick the hard of being yourself mm-hmm. and taking the reactions, taking the pushback, taking the fallout? I mean, for me, it was just an obvious. I don't know yeah. why it was an obvious answer. I mean, today, I suppose everybody's identity is slightly more performative if they want it to be because we just share things on social media. But you started sharing it before just anybody had the opportunity to do it. So, you know, a lot of people have had the chance to see your evolution and to have to, mm-hmm. you know, explain, well, yes, then, but now it's not. Or, you know, I, mm-hmm. people change. We, we also are allowed mm-hmm. to change. Yeah, I fear, you know, I have a 10-year-old and a 16-year-old, and I fear for this performative generation, you know, Hmm. this where identity, I do, I sort of smell that on my kids that you're supposed to devise an identity and perfect it and perform it, and it's got to be vivid it's got to be consistent in order to be vivid and striking and you know and 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 i do think that locks people down mm. into identity you know what is an identity it's all really illusory you know we're we're not anything we're just um a bunch of interactions and an evolution embodied you know and so I worry for my kids and all the young people that live through screens that it's almost like they're oppressing themselves, <laughs> yeah. you know, with what they can and cannot be. Um, you know, the messages, thankfully, are maybe coming fewer from outside of ourselves. Of you, you have to be this way, not that way. But it's like they're putting all these constrictions on themselves just based upon all these other sort of pressures and, and uh, that, that come from within. I mean, I think that gives us a chance to talk a little bit about the picture book, The Knowing, that you mm. published earlier this year that seems to be an answer or a response exactly to that, the idea that we define ourselves or people have the potential to define themselves by what labels or identifiers, mm-hmm. you know, whether that's internal or external, you seem to have really been concerned about that. Yeah, you're good. You're good, Leo. You got it. <laughs> you, you, you drew the connection for me. Yeah, that, that's very much, you know, when I got this offer to do a book for kids, I just, you know, I, I said, self, what do you want to say to a young reader or a, so, you know, a young, young being who's being read to? And that's exactly which is watching my kids 
just mired in identity politics, Mm. just full-time jobbing the identity politics, you know, which have value as well. And, you know, again, I'm a child of the 70s. So identity politics liberated us, Mm. right? It's like, guess what? I'm here and I'm here. And then Mm. they're here and they're here. And actually there's more people here than are being recognized. So that was a really important movement towards broadening identity and diversity but i just feel like it's eating itself it's eating its young (laughs) um so yeah i just wanted to make a book that spoke to i think an experience which which kids naturally have before they become mired in story which is all completely subjective Hmm. about who are you and who am i and what does that mean when we relate to each other Underneath all of that, who you are is spirit and who I am is spirit. And I think children can access this more easily before they become completely sucked into the story. And I just wanted to affirm that experience of young people of like, none of those labels matter when you really get down to it. Yeah. I mean, there's a real interesting tension in this conversation because we start with this idea that when you were coming of age, there were closeted people who were afraid to claim their identity Mm -hmm. and say who they were. And the way they would do that would be to put some identifying label on themselves. And here we are now 30 years later where we're saying, Mm -hmm. yeah, but the label actually isn't the important thing. And, you know, you were burdened with all kinds of labels that were thrown on (laughs) you, whether they were personal or professional or artistic or whatever. And I feel like in a way that's also not only a message to kids, but a message to yourself and maybe anybody else who's paying attention, like I rid myself of or I distance myself from any value that a label could give me. I'm just a person, you know, that's sort of how I read it. Totally. And I think that's been my stance all along, my sort of response to being labeled so many things and put in so many boxes um, by the media before there was social media, Mm -hmm. you know, um, was uh to just go sure hmm. sure call call me all sure you want me to get in the bisexual box or the lesbian box oh no wait what would you want me in both those box or and then <laughs> <clears throat> angry feminists man hater bot what do you need today what do you yeah you know i don't know but the like yeah just um call me whatever you need to i'm still just gonna be here doing doing my thing you know and yeah. And I feel like not resisting those labels and not trying to control it or design how people perceive me, which I think is a lot of the heavy lifting uh, that young people are doing now, Mm. uh, that I think takes a lot of time and energy. And I just I I feel like my instinct to just go. Yeah, call me whatever you want, you know, like that. My sense of myself is going to remain intact no matter what label you put on me. And, you know, it's not that it didn't affect my life. Like, you know, the media told anybody who would listen, like the only thing that was written about me for the first 20 years is that I was an angry lesbian feminist (laughs) who makes music and writes songs for other young, angry, lesbian feminists. So if you were anything 
uh, coming from any other direction. Yeah. What the media told is you don't belong at that show. Yeah. You, you don't need that to listen to that album. That's not for you. And it worked. It worked. It, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> I feel like a survivor of, yeah. of labels and, and boxes. And I just, if you just keep making your art and trying to be and grow and evolve and change and do what you feel compelled to do, eventually you will prove yourself bigger than those boxes and those labels. And people may find their way despite, you know, what they read or heard. Yeah. By the way, you know, I asked for 15 minutes. We're at 30. I'm having a great time, oh, but I just, I, I just don't want to take too much time. If you have to go, just tell me. Well, I'm having a great time too, Leo. I do have to finish my set list before four o'clock. So maybe we could wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. That sounds okay. great. So then this leads us to the idea of revolutionary love. It's a, not only a song, and a musical statement, but I think it's an idea that's bigger than even than a song or a musical statement. What does revolutionary love mean to you, or where did you settle on that, receive that, find that idea? Quite literally from my friend Valerie Kaur, um, K-A-U-R. She is a filmmaker, activist, lawyer, book writer, she, and, well, a fan of mine from way back. I got turned on to her work I don't know, maybe 2016. And I got in touch with her because I just wanted to let her know. And she said, ah, <laughs> I've been a fan of yours. <laughs> so we became friends. And she was one of my readers prior to publication of my memoir. Mm-hmm. You know, um, she was one of the people I reached out to and said, will you read my manuscript and give me feedback? And I did the same for her book, which she released mm, a year or two ago now, maybe two years ago now, uh, which is called See No Stranger, A Memoir and Manifesto of Revolutionary Love. And it's sort of a memoir of becoming an activist, a badass activist that she is, and also a really useful handbook for what's revolutionary love, how's it go, and how do you do it every day? How do you live it? So I think it's an awesome book. And reading her book made me see myself and my life and my work in a new, with new eyes. Like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, that's what I've been trying to do. And it's so useful to have language to describe and define it. And it's, you know, very essentially, of course, just about staying in a compassionate space with yourself, with your community, with your opponent. Mm-hmm. You know, there are three three contexts in which you engage in revolutionary love. Mm. It is a thing that is done in community. So everyone has a different role to play. For instance, if you are not safe, your role is to take care of yourself mm-hmm. and get yourself safe and turn that revolutionary love on yourself yes. or on your community if you are not safe. Say you are safe, which is some... Thing I feel I've arrived at in my life after years of working for it, you know, my practice now is to try to turn that on my opponents mm-hmm. to come to an interaction or a dialogue with my opponents with curiosity, with openness, though that's the stance, you know, don't assume, don't judge, keep asking questions, even 
when you think you know hmm. how full of shit that person is like don't think that way keep stay open like staying open is uh, uh, a show of respect it's a show of strength and it's a model for how we can create dialogue across barriers if you keep asking somebody questions and eliciting their story you can find any human being will eventually find a way in with each other across great divides really it's it's extraordinary i mean this process, you know, in terms of criminal justice or recovering from totally egregious harm is looks like restorative justice. You know, these there are practices around how to create dialogue between opposing parties, even when there is great harm involved. You know, yeah. another quick thing that I could mention is, especially when you're facing the opponent, look for the wound because the behavior, the words might really be disturbing, right? They might really be setting you off. They might really be causing harm. But even in the face of that, search for the wound in that person that's creating the harmful words, that's creating the harmful behavior. And if you are in a position to, if you are in a strength, strong and safe place, tend that wound. Mm -hmm. Make that the focus of your interaction with them. Search for what happened. What, where is the damage in that person that you can show compassion for? And maybe you don't get any work done about agreeing about something or making them see your way or da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But if you show compassion and you tend the wound in them, that's the first step to all the rest. Have you had experience in which revolutionary was practiced towards you? Once you discovered that idea, did you see that maybe there had been times when people had seen your wound and tried to fix it or heal I it? I mean, I guess my first thought is, I feel like I've had so many experiences where I wish that was happening, yeah. <laughs> you know, where I'm, the, I'm acting out, something is happening in me, I'm in pain, and so I'm acting out in some way. And what I super, and I think now very consciously crave from the world is don't respond to the way I'm acting out. Respond to the pain in me. Mm. You know, see through the behavior, the anger, whatever is presenting and see the pain, mm. you know. Like, don't react to the anger or the stupid way that it's manifesting. React to what's driving it and help me. You know, <laughs> that is what I think I always feel, even when I'm the problem. You know, like I'm aware I need help, you know, on some level. And that's why this is happening, you know. So I think, you know, revolutionary love is about finding that strength to approach each other that way. Yes. And ourselves, too. I mean, as you say, you have to right. start with yourself. Right. I have to acknowledge that we are speaking uh, originally and primarily because you are performing in New York on your birthday. This is going <laughs> to run after that performance, and it doesn't matter because it's been sold out for ages anyway. But you are playing mm -hmm. on your birthday. Is that significant to you to be playing in New York City on your birthday? Is it, Have you thought about what that means? Do those things matter? Um, 
I'm pretty psyched, <laughs> especially to be in New York, you know, because it's New York. And what it means these days, you know, I used to spend almost every birthday on stage mm. between the ages of 22 and 45, mm. you know. <laughs> and again, the last bunch of years, things have shifted radically. I'm on the road and on tour and on stage a lot less. So this is the first time I've been on my, on stage uh, doing a show on my birthday in a long time. So yeah. it feels kind of extra sweet. Like, ah, yeah, like the old days. <laughs> like the old days. <laughs> Ani, thank you so much. And I, I have to tell you before we hang up that your music has been so meaningful and important to me. And it's helped me. It's fucked with me. It's inspired mm -hmm. me. It's healed me. And I just want to tell you how grateful I am to you. Oh, I love that. Thank you, Leo. Made my day. There she was, my friends, Ani DeFranco. See her on Broadway in Hades Town starting in February. I'll be back again in your headspace with another deep dive before you know it. Until then, I'll talk to you soon. I have a name, and my name has a story. I have a look, a sound, a smell. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org/studios.